Good morning. Say that it's a pleasure to be with you all. Um, welcome you people that are joining on Zoom. Um, say that I appreciate the ability to be here this morning. Um, appreciate everyone that had the ability and made the decision to come out. Um, want to start by saying that the topic I've chosen this morning, I actually jumped around a little bit. I've got two or three that I'm trying to wrap up. Um, this time of year, it's really hard to finish writing a sermon and, or a study um, for that matter. But this is one I've had. I've had ready to go for quite a while. Um, and the more I've thought about it, the more I've decided that's what we want to talk about. The topic is love. This will by no means be an exhaust, exhaustive study or an exhaustive look at the thought of love. Um, there are several words in the New Testament that are translated to love from the Greek. We're going to zoom in and look at one very specifically. And I hope that the things that we talked about this morning are beneficial to you, that you'll be able to go from this place and, and feel uplifted, but more importantly, take the things we talk about and make application in your life. We're going to take our text from 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13. Bump that, Brian. There we go. It says, And now abide a faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. That word charity there is the Greek word agape, and it's translated from G25. If you're reading a New King James Bible, or not a New King, a King James Bible, almost every time that word charity is used in that translation, it's this G25 or G26, agape love. And that is love or affection and benevolence. Specifically, this is the plural form, a love feast or a feast of charity, dear and loved. And that word is to love in a social or moral sense, connected to a Hebrew term that means literally to dote on or to breathe after. Your, your life or your breath depends on your love for someone else. And there's Another word that's translated a lot to love, and that's phileo, that's brotherly love, and I don't want to detract from that. That's a very important aspect of the Christian life. Brotherly love comes from our feelings of agape, or not our feelings, our choice of agape, and how we act that out in the relationships we have with one another. But this is something I feel like we should talk about, and, and I need a reminder of. What we see in our world right now, our society around us, not the world in general, but our society is a breakdown of this love. Our society has decayed and, and civility has decayed around us. People don't treat each other with respect is the way we'd say that today. Um, it's commonplace for people to shout each other down. And in a world of keyboard warriors and, and social media warriors, hate is all too common. And as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, we should exemplify something different in our life. Paul, in writing the book that we, in the chapter that we call the chapter of love, says, faith, hope, and charity, or love abides, and the greatest of these is love. And we're going to come back and look at what Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 13 and what it means in relation to the chapters in front of and behind it. But we want to note the greatest of the things that abide and he's speaking in reference to the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy and the gifts that the early church had, these miraculous gifts. But he says the greatest, now those things are going to pass, but faith, hope, and love will abide. What we find in the Scripture is that we have an expectation from God of love. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and, his, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. And that perfected is complete there. God's love is complete in us if we love. Now, this is one of the few instances in Scripture where charity or agape is translated love directly. 
Agape is translated love and not charity. Each one of these is G25 or G26. That's agape love throughout this passage. Love is from God. And in verse 8, he says, God is love. Now, I like to go to the Strong's and the Concordances and to look at definitions of words, but the Bible is very good at defining itself. And, and that's what we'll find as we look at this topic and look at this word as it's used throughout the New Testament. But the Bible, and it tells us here, here is this love that God loved us and sent His Son to die for our sins. That word propitiation there is atonement. This agape love is sacrifice. This agape love is choice and decision. It's purposeful. It's intentful. We know from 1 Peter that He spoke the world into existence that His Son would die for us. Purpose and intent. And Jesus followed through with that sacrifice. And then God puts the onus on us. If God loved us, this agape love, if God demonstrated that toward us, we ought to reciprocate that to one another. To turn that again and show love, we want to define terms this morning. This is not the warm, fuzzy feelings that people talk about falling into and out of. That's affection, and, and you can have affection for someone for a time and nod, and, and that wavers back and forth. Agape love is not that. That is something different. This does not happen by chance. God didn't just happen into loving His creation. And the reason I want to talk about this topic, and I've actually talk, probably talked about most of these th things in different sermons because I feel in my understanding of the Word of God, this book, if I could define it in one term or in one word, is love. From the beginning to the end, it's a love letter from God to His creation. There are things in there that are, are deep and spiritual, things that, in there, that are in there about God's wrath and His judgment and punishment, but the whole book is there so His creation could no one understand Him. From the beginning when God made the decision to make a creation would have the choice to turn against Him and to set things in motion to redeem that creation to the end of the book and the, the culmination, the climax of His love when He sent His Son to die. This is not something that you offer to those with whom you find yourself compatible. This doesn't... Agape love is not a friendship, a close-knit friendship that, well, you and I have things in common, so I'm going to show love to you, and, and you and I don't, so push you to the peripheral. Because if that was the case, we wouldn't have atonement for our sins. When Christ died for us and made that sacrifice available to us, we didn't have much in common with God. In fact, Hebrews says that we were His enemies. Sorry, Romans says that we were His enemies. It's something that should be offered to everyone because it's a conscious choice that we make. And, and there's, look at these two different words um, in the New Testament. John 21, 15 says, So when they had died, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. This is an interesting conversation between Jesus and Peter here. Jesus is asking, Do you agape me? And Peter responds, Lord, I love you like a brother. When I read this, and, and I'm not going to tell you that my understanding of this is in, infallible or absolutely correct, but when I read this, if you read on down, when Jesus describes to Peter the kind of death he was going to die, Jesus is telling Peter, you're going to have to make a choice. More than just the affection you have for me. Your life is not going to be easy. When Jesus died on the cross, after Peter cut off the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus put it back on, Peter's world was shaken. Now he followed Jesus, went with him at a distance, but when it was push come to shove, Peter backed off and said, I don't know him. Three times. 
Now, he was so caught up in the moment that until the cock crew, he didn't think about the warning Jesus had given. Now, when it happened, he remembered. And Peter, being human, this is not in the Scripture. This is Jared's think so. As I read the book and, and place myself in these situations, I can feel Peter's pain as he makes eye contact with Jesus and remembers the prophecy that you would deny me three times. The realization is sin sets in and you look up and see something that reminds you of the Lord. The realization of what you've done. Jesus goes to the cross, He's buried, and and He goes back fishing. So Jesus has come to Him now. They've had the miracle of Jesus telling Him to cast the nets back in and draw them in. They've got a catch that needed multiple people to haul in. They've dined with Jesus. And and you know, or I, I can see Peter, I can see myself sitting there waiting for Him to acknowledge what happened. Peter, you remember when you denied me? Of course, that's not what the Lord did. What He was trying to do was give Peter encouragement. And we have the agapeo, which is G25, and the phileo, which is 5368. And that exchange happens over and over again. Three times, Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my lambs. And then He proceeds to tell him how, what manner He was to die in. So I said the Bible is good at defining itself, and it it gives definitions of its own terms. We want to look at how the Bible defines charity or agape. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse number 4, says, Charity suffereth long, it is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether it be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether it be tongues, they shall cease. Whether it be knowledge, it shall vanish away. I want to look at this again in the ESV, just a little more updated towards our language. Um, So it says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, the book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, God is love. God is agape. That's the word here every time, every instance in 1 Corinthians 13. You can take God's name and replace it God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast and is not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on His own way, is not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. When we consider the attributes of God and and who God is in His interaction with us, we should consider these things. The patience and kindness of love, or of God, and dealing with this creation that so often scorns, mocks, and ridicules Him. That throws our hands up in the air and says, where is God? Or that adopts the ideas of Pharaoh and says, who is God? That I should be mindful of Him. And God does not boast or is not puffed up. And that's an interesting thought when you think about there's not anything that God is puffed up about. He is well pleased in things, and God is the ruler and controller of all things, but He's not arrogant about things. does not insist on its own way, and I, I can feel the pushback as I say this about God, because God has a definite standard, and that's not my argument this morning. There is a standard that if you're going to have a relationship with God, you need to strive to, but in God's creation... He could have made absolute robots. If God wanted to insist on His own way, there would be nothing we could do to stop it. We are His creation and we would behave exactly as He wanted us to because He could will it so. But God has stepped back and allowed us free will to make our own decisions and our own choices. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 
We consider the long-suffering of God and the patience of God as He watches His creation, as He watches us deal in this flesh and in this life, knowing that He has something better planned for us. If we would make the right choices and choose His path and choose to walk in His ways, but He bears with us, He believes in us, and He hopes for us. So as we look at this and consider that God is these things and God is love embodied and love perfected, that's our standard. And that's the standard of absolute perfection. As I look at this and try to grasp what this should look like in my life, my fleshly brain struggles to see all these things out to their logical conclusion. Because my view of love is tainted by the things that I've endured in this life. That when I'm patient and kind, it gets taken advantage of. That there are people that are going to prey on my desire to be kind to them or my, my patience. My flesh longs to be envious or to boast. To show my good and my worth. And to puff myself up. I struggle to not be rude. When things don't go my way, I want to lash out and demonstrate to those around me that I'm unhappy. Now, generally they know, but I want them to know for sure, and the way to do that is to be rude. I do insist in my own way. It can be irritable and resentful. So those things, that's the standard. It's perfection. And we should be striving that direction. Move back to our expectation of love. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse number 1, says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Paul is talking to the church about their gifts. And in the church in Corinth, they had people there that had spiritual gifts, and it was creating division. They were placing a hierarchy or a standard on gifts that these gifts are better than those gifts, better than you are. And Paul explains in chapter 12 that all of those things come from God, and he ends the thought with, I show you a better way. I'm going to demonstrate to you something superior. And then he moves into chapter 13. There's some hyperbole here when he's speaking about speaking with the tongues of angels. There would have been no use or profit to speaking with the tongue of angels for men. But Paul is setting the standard way out here. If I could talk with the, the language that angels speak and I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and made myself destitute and I don't have love, I am nothing. He says, even if my faith is great enough to speak to a mountain to remove itself and it did it and I don't have love, I'm nothing. The expectation of love is great. He moves from this thought into the passage we just read that's the standard. Everything we do in our life, and you can say in your Christian life, but if you have a living faith, a moving faith, everything you do in your life should be tempered by your faith. You work with honor as to God, and it should all be driven and motivated by our love. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Jesus says a new commandment. This was him wanting to be very express with what he was saying. I want you to know this. You love each other the way I have loved you. And, and this word here again is agape. How did he love 
these disciples? How did He love you and I? Well, He demonstrates that a few chapters later as we move into the garden where Jesus offers His prayer, where He pours His heart out to God before going to the cross. Make them one as you and I are one. Help them to be one in me so that you may be glorified and the world might know. And he, he sets the standard here. Our love that we share one for another should be the mark of our discipleship. If you have one love one to another, men shall know that you are my disciples. should be a mark of who we are. The world is full of division, full of hate, and, and we could get into social media again and interactions there, but we should be demonstrably different. Our love should stand out. It should be as a beacon in dark places. Men shall know you're my disciples. A few people that I've had interactions um, with here recently will probably tell you I've, I've been adding something to my text, and I, I almost hope it's a little bit weird right now because I didn't do it before. I'm expressly, when I end a conversation with people, trying to remind them and tell them that I love them. There was a challenge a friend of mine posted long, a little while back that said, tell people you love them and make it weird. It should stand out. And I want you all to know that I love you. And the things that we try to do should be motivated by that love. Not motivated by self-interest. But love to a point that Christ loved. And that's what He's getting at here. He was going to the cross. He was on that journey. And when He says, as I have loved you, what He's saying is sacrifice yourselves. Put yourself aside for the good of your brothers. As I have loved you, you love each other. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, says, hereby, we, hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here in 1 John 3, John has said a new commandment. He's, he's trying to call Christians' minds back to the commandment of Christ in John 13. Hereby we perceive God's love, again, agape, and that He laid down His life for us. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Jesus didn't have blue skies and rainbows and hearts and unicorns as He was staring at the cross. We see in His prayer in the garden that He implored God if there was any other way to let this cup pass. As we consider the, the burden that Jesus bore on our behalf, I want to consider His life briefly, and I'll, I'll try not to take too much time doing this. Foreordained before the foundation of the world. God's Word tells us that. He knew His purpose. At a young age, He's out teaching God's Word and says He must be about His Father's business. Do you think the times in his life when he was in Jerusalem, especially as he got older, that he would look on Golgotha and know that's where I'm going? Now, that didn't hinder him. While the spirit and the flesh are at war, Jesus was tapped into the spiritual side of that and the drive of God's love and God's purpose. But he was still human. And knowing not just the physical pain that he would endure, but that he was to become sin for all of mankind. And what that means is the wrath of God was poured upon him on the cross that was owed to me and owed to you. And I t tell you all this 
as we consider our life and what I'm going to ask that we do this morning, that God has not ever asked of us anything more than He's willing to do Himself. And usually it's far less. As God asks us to lay down our lives for each other, He's demonstrated that and so much more on our behalf. He paved the way and set the standard and said, follow me. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, I don't know how it is for you all, but I've said growing up, I watched a lot of John Wayne movies and read a lot of Louis Moore books, and it's easy for me to think about dying for someone in a sense that, you know, in a situation, I'll be the guy to, to step in. Now, it's easy to think about those things because I've not ever actually been in that situation. But Jesus is asking something more here. He wants something more from us. To lay aside our lives, our wants, and our desires for the good of our brothers and sisters. To give of my life to them something in my life that I often regard as my own and, and have a tendency to kind of protect, is my time. It's, it's precious. It's a commodity of which there will be no more made. I've got a set amount of time in each day, and, and how I use that I feel like is my choice and my decision, and I want to pull those things into me because I've got a family that I want to spend time with. And I've got things in this life that I want to do. And so I have to step back and say, when that becomes a problem for me, I need to make extra effort to try and spend time for the brethren. To give of my life right there, that resource that is mine, to be a good steward of on behalf of God, to bring glory to Him. More, looking at more examples of love exemplified, says in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 13, Jesus Matthew 14, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus heard of it, He departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. When the people had heard thereof, they followed Him on foot out of the cities. When Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude, He was moved with compassion toward them, and He healed their sick. An example we see of our Lord often in Scriptures is that He would draw away on His own and, and find time to spend time with God. Renewing his spirit. So he is withdrawn from the city into a desert place for solitude. And people figured out where he went, and it says a great multitude. I don't know what that number would have been. I know what I'm trying to find some time to sit and get my mind right. More than about two or three can be a great multitude for me. Now, if the Bible says a great multitude, I bet it was more than that. But look at his reaction. He didn't hold his hands up and say, no, 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 not right now. Y'all go back where you came from. I need some time. I need a minute. Don't bother me right now. I've been with you people all day. I need some time with God. It says he was moved with compassion and healed their sick. Luke 23, beginning in verse 33, it says, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified with him the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Jesus fulfilled his purpose to the very end. Now he could have hung on the cross and said nothing. He knew his purpose. He actually had the ability to speak judgment and come down off of the cross. But he made the choice to stay there. And more than that, as he hung on the cross and looked out on the crowd that was whipped into a bloodlust, They ridiculed him. 
They spat on him. They had mock trials and, and basically found nothing to, to crucify him for, and they, so they crucified him for nothing. Effectively, what they did was create a riot so that Pilate, if he didn't do it, was going to have to answer to Rome. And as he looks out on this crowd that has driven him to the cross, he knows his purpose. He knows God's intent. And he exemplifies love. Instead of simply saying nothing, he asks for forgiveness. Now, we're not told in Acts chapter 2 what the individual hearts were, the people that responded on the day of Pentecost. But Jesus planted good seeds here by taking hate and reciprocating love. The kind of hate that wants to see someone in physical pain is something I can't grasp. But it was exemplified there. And he turned it back to them in love. So we love as we have been loved. Love by choice and sacrifice. John 15, 12, and 13, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater man hath no love, greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. We have to make a conscious decision to give every day to give of ourselves, to give of our means, to give of our time, to lay our wants and desires in this life down for our brothers and sisters. And more than that, for the good of the lost that we come in contact with. It wasn't the love of these disciples that drove Jesus to the cross, but a greater love of all mankind. The pain of loss was real for Jesus. The lost souls that he came in contact with was a pain to his heart. And he laid his life down to provide a way of redemption. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 12, says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now, I use this passage, um, I believe it's the last time I spoke, and I, I cut my definition short, and I don't have all the strongs and, and so forth here. But we use forbearing as, as to put up with. We're forbearing one another when we put up with one another. When you dig into that and... and as I considered the definitions and put those things together, um, a conversation I had with someone said they kind of viewed that like a crutch. And my explanation to them was that I look at that and, and, and there's definitely the idea of pressing yourself up against to hold up, but a crutch is inanimate. We're living and breathing. And if we're forbearing with one another, we are clutching to one another to hold each other up as we walk the path with God. That's the idea of pressing yourself up against. You're clinging to with the purpose of your mutual benefit, holding each other up. If love is exemplified in this place the way that it should be, then I'm looking out for your best interest, and you're looking out for my best interest. And we have that reciprocation where I don't have to worry about my wants and desires or the things that I call my needs because you're doing that on my behalf. And so I can focus on the things that you have a need of and being a servant to you for bearing with one another and offering forgiveness to one another. And above all these things, and it's interesting... Paul uses that term here, and it's used in the book of 1 Peter 4. Of all, put on charity. Put on love, because it's the bond of perfectness. Perfectness.
How do you stay together? How do you stay the course? How do you continually push yourself aside and say, I'm not the most important here? It's love. That's the only way to do it. And and the question is going to be asked, and and it should be asked for ourselves, how do I do that? How do I demonstrate love better each day? How do I reach the place where I'm forbearing with and forgiving my brothers and sisters, where I'm putting on bowels of mercies and kindness and humility of mind? Well, you know where you are today, and you seek your heart to determine who you are, and you aim to do a little better tomorrow. And the day after that, you look to do better than you did yesterday. And you constantly move forward, striving to be a little better each day. Striving to be a little more Christ-like. Striving to love like we have been loved. We can't compare ourselves to one another and say, well, I'm, I'm loving better than they are, or I'm not loving as well as they are, and throw our hands up and give up. Our relationship and our standard is how we compare to God and how we're pushing towards that mark. How we're getting better. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase in the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Speaking the truth in love. This is a topic that has been um, common among some of the people that I spend more time talking to. The ability to approach someone and have a conversation about what we can be doing better. That's, that's the drive here. Edify myself in love. Edify means to build up. The body, we all, have the ability to strengthen one another if we have the ability to speak to one another in love, understanding the mutual love that we have for one another. And this is not the purpose of this sermon, but if someone's going to come to me and meekly approach me and say, hey, Jared, I think I think you're not seeing this, but I think this is something that maybe we should talk about. Now, my initial fleshly reaction is to recoil at that and say, why are you looking at my life? But as I consider those things in love, I need to acknowledge the fact that it's difficult to do that. It is difficult to approach someone and say, I think you need some improvement here. And so if they're doing that, there's a level of love being demonstrated that I need to acknowledge and appreciate. Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6 says, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Open rebuke is better than secret love. If someone loves you enough to come say, hey, let's talk about this, that is a friend. Now, you would hope that they're not coming at you with a two-by-four, looking to beat you over the head with it, although there are some of us that probably need that from time to time. But if they're coming to you, then they're faithful friends. Because your enemies don't care how good you're doing or how poorly you're doing. These are not indifferent people, but people that want to see you do poorly. So when you're doing poorly and they Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we get back to our idea from Colossians, forbearing one another, or clutching to one another. We each have individual loads in this life that are ours to bear. And we bear the cross of Christ. And bear, sorry, we bear our cross. But if we're loving one another, then while I'm bearing mine, 
I'm helping you bear yours, and you're helping me bear mine. And, and there's mutual benefit as we all put a shoulder to the load of one another. And that's the invitation of Christ. Take my yoke upon you. And we bear that yoke with Christ, bear that yoke with one another, and we fulfill the law of Christ. But we have to have that ability to love each other enough to speak out. And that has to be done in a loving way, in a meek way, with the purpose of fulfillment and restoration. Galatians 5 verse 13 says, For brethren, if you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Been called to liberty, but don't use liberty for occasion to the flesh. That's another one of those places where we are to be good stewards of those things. Not to use them for our own consumption, but to serve one another. He says, all the laws fulfilled, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And that applies to the household of God, and it applies outside of the household of God. When we move around in this world, those that we come in contact with should know us as a person of love. That through our love, we seek to serve. And we seek the benefit of everyone around us to do good for them by choice and sacrifice. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's, it's good for me to say I love you because that's not something I've practiced a lot outside of my very close family. But it's not good for me to say I love you if I don't back it up. If I love in word only, I am nothing. When I see a need, and I look at that need, do I first consider, man, if I do this, I'm not going to be able to, or that's sure going to take away from my, you fill in the blank. And not that those things are wrong, because our minds consider things. Then do we make that decision to shut ourselves up and back away from need? Don't love in word, but in deed and in truth. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8 and 9 says, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. And again, talked about this passage the last time I spoke. Charity covers a multitude of sins, and, and charity is what drove Jesus to the cross. That agape love, that love by choice and sacrifice, is what caused Him to stay there. Is what caused Him to cry out, Father, forgive. But charity is what's going to cover our trespasses against one another. We have to have love to accept the wrong sometimes from a brother or sister in Christ. Now, if there's sin involved, that needs to be dealt with, and, and God's Word has the standard for that. But sometimes we put up barriers that are a little bit away from where God would say, you've been trespassed against. We have our boundaries and say, you need to stay outside of that. Our love should cover a multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. This passage has been interesting to me. I've been pouring over it for weeks, probably digging harder than what is there at face value. That use hospitality there, those words are the same words that are used in First Timothy and in Titus and the um, role of elders, the characteristics that elders are to have. 
given to hospitality, lover of hospitality. It's interesting that none of the translations I found translated that this way. Given to hospitality without grudging. As I read this, I hear Peter speaking to us the way I would speak to my children when I want to be very clear. When I want them to absolutely understand what I'm saying. If I was going to say this to my children so they would understand me, what I would say is love having people in your home without being unhappy about it. Don't grumble. Very expressed there. He could have just said, be given to hospitality. That's, but be given to hospitality and love it. And he links these two things. Above all, having fervent charity, using hospitality. And this is well before the age of social media when we could just send something out to our friends or make a telephone call. Now, those things are good to do in a time when we have more mobility and we spend greater distances or put greater distances between us and our family. Phone calls are good things. FaceTime's a good thing. But there's nothing that will replace face-to-face. And I get that during this time of illness, it's difficult. I understand. We're dealing with something that's not completely understood and that's scary in some senses. But we have got to have a drive to be together. Without getting too far off base in this passage, verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is, is at hand then you ought to live soberly and righteously in this world. We have an opportunity as our world, as our society, turns darker and turns more away from Christ, that we should demonstrate the difference of our life. We're not like other people. We shouldn't be. Our standard is different because our hope is somewhere else. It's not in this life. It's not in the United States of America. It's not in some politician. But it's beyond that. And hope external of this life is something to have joy about. And something that should motivate us to move every day. As our society and civility breaks down around us, our relationships with one another should be more and more important to us. And they should be more and more evident to the people that are around us. Because people get sick of hate. You can only be around it for so long before you say, I've had enough. And when there's a place you can go that every time you're there, the love that is demonstrated there is the love that drove Jesus to the cross, that's somewhere you want to be. Use hospitality without grudging. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. I like this passage because I'm a little bit of a provoker. Provocateur. Not sure how you would say that properly. I, I like to tease and I like to poke. That's just kind of my nature. If you can't see it in me because I've tried to temper it a little bit, watch my children. I think they all got it from me. Um, if they're not pestering you, they're pestering one another, I promise. And that word provoke there is to drive towards an emotion or a response. You're pushing someone towards a response. Now, often when I'm using that word provoke, I'm talking to my kids saying, stop provoking each other. Now, what I should be saying is provoking to anger because there's a positive way to provoke, a positive way to push someone to a positive response. And everything we do in our drive and our interactions with one another should be to push each other towards being demonstrably loving. 
and to having good works in our life. Push each other. Push each other and have the kind of love that allows yourself to be pushed. Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward His name, that you minister to the saints and do minister. Love as you have been loved. As God loves us, so ought also we to love one another. God is not unrighteous to forget our labor of love. As we consider laying down our lives and making a sacrifice for ourselves for those that are around us, it's difficult for our minds not to consider, what am I getting out of this? What good has it done me to do these things? To give up my own good? To sacrifice my desires or my needs as we think of them? Well, God in His infinite wisdom reminded us that in those things, He's not going to forget. He tells us that I'm watching what you're doing. And I see your labor of love. So, the writer of Hebrews commends them for ministering to the saints and reminds them to keep doing it. As you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Love as we have been loved. Giving, laying down ourselves, putting my wants aside. Conscious decision, intentful. Minister to the saints. In these times, those things can be difficult. We want to draw in and protect our own. And again, I get it. And I'm not going to fault anyone for doing what they have to do to protect their family but we have to do it in a way that demonstrates love for our brothers and sisters. We have to do it in a way that demonstrates love to the world around us. And that can mean any number of things. Show love in your life. And help me when I'm not showing love in mine. Talked about the invitation of Christ this morning. When He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That invitation stands open to anyone who needs it. If you're watching via Zoom this morning and you want to talk about the things that have been talked about this morning or you have a need that you need to get off of your chest and, and take to Christ and you don't know how to do it, reach out to the elders. And they will help you in love. I don't know that I've seen a body of men, a group of men that have demonstrated love better than the guys do here as a whole. Reach out to someone and get help today and, and accept and acknowledge the love of Christ in your life. If you're here and you have a need, the church can meet. Once you come and have a seat as we stand and as we sing.